I invite you all to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, Philippians 1. And you'll need a Bible to follow along. If you don't have one, then these guys have some. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need one, get their attention. And they'll get you a Bible that is marked for you at Philippians 1 so that you can follow along. Philippians chapter 1. A preacher's five-year-old daughter noticed that her father always paused and bowed his head for a moment before he started his sermon. And one day that five-year-old asked him why, and he said, well, honey, he was very proud that his daughter was so observant of his messages. He said, I'm asking the Lord to help me preach a good sermon. How come he doesn't do it, she asked. <laughs> that was that was not my daughter's, I might add. Though I could have, I could hear that coming out of their mouths. A woman invited some people to dinner and at the table she turned to her six-year-old daughter and said, would you like to say the blessing? I wouldn't know what to say, the little girl replied. Well, just say what you hear your mommy say. So the little girl bowed her head and she said, dear Lord, why on earth did I invite all these people over for dinner? Little Johnny had been misbehaving and he was sent to his room. After a while, he emerged and he informed his mother that he had thought it over and then said a prayer. Wonderful, his mother said. If you ask God to help you not misbehave, he will help you. Oh, I didn't ask him to help me not misbehave. I asked him to help you put up with me. (laughs) A little boy was overheard praying, Lord, if you can't make me a better boy, don't worry about it. I'm having a real good time like I am. (laughs) Now, if you ask most people if they're satisfied with the status of their prayer lives, most would give an overwhelming no. And part of the reason is that although very early on in our Christian lives, we may learn to go to God and ask for things. Many of us never grow, now hear this, we never grow in the things we ask for. And so we laugh at those childish prayers. But each of us needs to think about the maturity of our own prayers. What kinds of things do we pray for? Because you notice that one of the characteristics of kids' prayers is that they're often centered on them. And upon their world and upon their concerns. Do you remember how it was that Jesus told his followers to pray? Jesus said in what we call the Lord's Prayer, but is really the disciples' prayer. It's a prayer for them to pray, as I've pointed out many times. It's not a prayer that Jesus can even pray because he asks, forgive us our debts. And Jesus had no debts to be forgiven. So he gave that prayer as a sample, a model for us. And he put things in that prayer in proper priority. He told them to focus first on God and what God cares most about. And so in that prayer, Jesus gave six requests, six petitions, the first three of which deal with God. May your name be hallowed. May your name be made holy. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. Now, to be sure, in that model prayer, Jesus went on to instruct us to bring our needs before the Father, our physical needs, our daily bread, our spiritual needs for forgiveness. But the priority is outside of us and 
toward God. So what if we began to reprioritize our prayers so that we're not focused on what we think is important, but rather on what God thinks is important? What if our prayers were focused less on us and more on others, less on material matters and more on spiritual matters? Perhaps one way to gauge whether we know what's important to God and what's best for others is to answer this question. Could I pray for people even if I didn't have a list of their requests? Even if I didn't have a list of their laundry list of things that are going on in their lives, would I know from God's perspective what's important for them to have and for them to do and thus be able to pray for it? We have lists that catalog all that's going on in our lives. And most often those lists are focused on our physical and material needs. And again, Jesus says to ask for those. So that's all good. But could we pray for someone even if we didn't know their particular physical and material needs? In Philippians 1, we have a lesson on how to pray. And how to pray for what is most important to God. How to pray, that is, with a focus on spiritual priorities. Now, in the opening chapters of this letter to the church in a city called Philippi, Paul, the one who who wrote it, begins by letting his readers know about his prayers for them. We've seen in the last two weeks, from verses 1 through 8, particularly starting in verse 3, it tells us when he prays for them. And he says there it's regularly and often. And it tells us how he prays for them. He says in verse 4, I pray with thanks and with joy. And he says why he prays this way in verse 5, because they are partners in spreading the gospel and carrying out the biblical mission with him. So those verses tell us when and how and why he prays. But today we're going to see in verses 9 through 11 what it is in particular he prays for. Now, you may remember from the first two messages of our series that we've titled Together for the Gospel, that this prayer, the writing of this letter to this church, is offered at a time when the apostle himself faced bleak circumstances. It's at a time when he is endangered. It's at a time when he is in great need because he is under house arrest and he is awaiting the verdict as to what his sentence is going to be ultimately. And yet, instead of praying for himself, he's praying for others. And he's praying for others with a focus on what is best for them spiritually. And these three verses, verses 9 through 11 of chapter 1, we're given a glimpse into the prayer of a mature Christian. As he prays for what's truly best. Now let's ask God to help us then as we look at this prayer. Father, thank you for bringing us here. Every moment of every day that you allow us to breathe, that you allow us to use what you have created in your world as your creatures, every moment is a rendezvous, an appointment that you have created on your calendar before eternity or before time began. And so, Lord, this time, this hour, this moment is your moment. You have brought us here together to look into your word together and to be instructed and to be changed. 
And so we ask you, Lord, to teach us, teach us through the prayer of your servant, Paul, how we should be. And as a result of how we are, what we should do, the things that we should ask for, both for ourselves and for others. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 9 of chapter 1. This is my prayer. Notice the colon after that. Here's the content. This is what I pray for. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. And we're going to look at the rest in a bit. But for now, this is the content of the prayer. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Now, on one level, this prayer asks that love be for increasingly obvious love in the lives of Christians. But the purpose for that request is seen actually in the next verse. He says, I pray that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. But then notice verse 10. So that, here's why. Here's why I pray that your love abounds more and more in this way. So that you may be able to discern what is best. And that's why I say in the outline, the outline that's inserted in your program, if you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take that out so you can follow along. I say, first of all, in that outline, that we are called to pursue what is best. We are called to pursue what is best. In this prayer, I pray that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. And here's why I pray that, so that you may be able to discern what is is best. So what are these best things? What are these excellent things that we should desire for ourselves and for other brothers and sisters? One New Testament scholar points out that what is best is seen already in what was said just a few verses earlier and that we saw last week, namely in verse number 6 of chapter 1. Look at that, please. Verse 6 He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now notice, this work that he began is carried on and it will culminate in the return of Jesus. Therefore, there is this assumed progress in the life of the Christian. This progress in the Christian life is one of the dominant themes of the book of Philippians. And though this growth, according to verse 6, in the life of a Christian is something that will happen. And that's why he has this expression of confidence. Please know this. Hear this. It's not automatic. It's inevitable. But it's not automatic. That is, it does not just happen. It involves our active participation and our active pursuit. And as we get a couple of chapters later in this letter, as we will in several weeks into chapter 3, you will see what Paul, who wrote this, says about himself in his own pursuit of that which is best. If you'll just look at chapter 3 for just a moment, in verse 10. Chapter 3 and verse 10. I, that is Paul, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. That's what I want. That's my goal. As I am between the work that he began in me and the work that will culminate in the return of Jesus, that is being carried on, 
and in which I participate. That's what I want. But where is he? Where is Paul in this process? Verse 12. Not that I have already attained, obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to take hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. The things that are best then are nothing less than all that's involved in maturing Christian growth. What is best includes increasing experience of the power of the resurrection and increasing participation in Christ's sufferings. The pursuit of this kind of spiritual excellence, the pursuit of the best things, is not achieved the way you might initially and we might initially interpret and understand verse 10 of chapter 1. Where he says, I say this, I pray this, so that you may be able to discern what is best. When we look at that, we may be thinking that that's a verse on decision-making and the will of God. We're going to see in a bit that it involves that. It involves the decisions and the everyday decisions that I make. But it's not achieved, this kind of spiritual excellence, these best things are not achieved in easy decisions about things that are obviously right or wrong. And that's why you can only do it if you love the right things in the right way. That's why verse 9 is a requirement. It's a prerequisite to to you and I being able to discern what is best. And verse 9 says you've got to have this love that abounds more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Now we're going to see what that love looks like in just a bit. But for now, we need to understand that the pursuit of what is best, the pursuit of what is excellent, the desire and the drive for spiritual growth involves choices that reflect our entire value system, our entire set of priorities. In order to discern what is best, we have to have hearts and minds that are profoundly and deeply Christian. But that requires what is said in the verse just prior to verse 10, verse 9. It requires this love that abounds more and more. And not just love in a sort of general, frothy sense, but a particular type of love. And so I say in your outline, we are called to pursue what is best. But secondly, what is best results from real love. What is best results from real love. So this is what I'm called to. This is what we're called to. And therefore, this is what we should pray for for one another, as Paul does for these Christians in Philippi. That they're able to discern what is best. And what is best is spiritual growth in all of its dimensions. But in order for us to be able to do that, make choices in life that are consistent with that and move that forward, verse 9 is saying, you're going to have to have this love. That abounds more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. And that's why I say what is best results from. And you can only have if you have real love. Real love. That's as opposed to the love that most of us think of. Particularly in our culture. A sentimentality. A primarily emotional 
Love a feeling that is fleeting, that comes and goes. Love is such a common word to us, it's easy to miss what it really is and why we should care about it. Love, first of all, points to the character of God and to God's actions toward his people based on that character. God's love is demonstrated especially in his forbearing with us and his kindness toward us. We have a description of that kind of love. Agape is the Greek word many of you have heard. Agape love. In the famous, what is called love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13. And it starts out simply with this. Love is patient. Love is kind. Why is love toward others patient and kind? Because God's love toward us is patient and kind. This love of God was manifested ultimately in the death of God the Son. Jesus Christ for his enemies. And that's why Romans 5, 8 says this. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the primary meaning of love is not first affection, which is what we think of when we talk of love in our culture. While true, real, biblical love is not less than feeling, it's more than feeling. It is, in the words of one commentator, a sober kind of love that places high value on a person and actively seeks that person's benefit. Or in the working definition that you've heard me give many times, love is doing what is in the best interests of another. When verse 9 then speaks of their love being displayed more and more, it's indicating that they're already loving. You've already got love. I want more of it. So they already have it. They're already displaying it. But like us, they face the danger of following what chapter 2 and verse 3 says. In chapter 2 and verse 3, it warns of selfish ambition and vain conceit. And so they are in danger like we are in danger of having the love that they're already showing undermined. They've been showing this love for a good decade or so as Christians together in that city. But it is in danger of being undermined. Now, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, this church was known for its generosity and its sacrifice on behalf of the Lord's servants and for the Lord's work. But sometimes, wouldn't you agree, love is more easily shown toward those outside the immediate family. We're more favorably disposed to those we haven't seen in a while and with whom we don't have to deal on a regular basis. So even though they've done this, even though they've given these generous offerings and sacrificial offerings to people that are not in the city of Philippi, and they've had them sent even to Paul while he's in Rome, and they've done it on more than one occasion, still they have this danger that in their everyday living with one another, this love may fall prey to selfish ambition and vain conceit. We can tend to be more favorably disposed to those we haven't seen in a while, those we don't have to deal with on a regular basis. But to actively love those who we see and interact with week in and week out in our homes and in our church, with all of the challenges that that go on in relationships between fellow sinners, well, that can be quite another matter, can it? And so one poet said to... Live above with saints we love, well, that will be grace and glory. But to live below with saints we know, well, that's another story. And that's often the way it is. So they have to be called to have this real love 
that emulates God's love, love for God, as we're going to see, and love then for others. It's in danger in the same way that it's always endangered for those of us who are still struggling with sin. And so the prayer is that love that has long characterized them will overflow still more and more toward one and all. And this real love in verse 9 is described as based on knowledge. Verse 9 says, and this is my prayer, that your love will abound more and more in knowledge. And I say in your outline, real love is love that is experienced. Experienced. I didn't say knowledgeable there. I said experienced. And I'll explain the reason. It's because the word that's translated knowledge in verse 9 has the primary sense of not so much knowledge about something, but instead the kind of full or intimate knowing that comes from experience or personal relationship. That's the word that's used there in verse 9. Now, is it talking about love for God or is it talking about love for others? That your love may abound more and more in this knowledge with the object of that love that you have a personal relationship with and an intimacy. Is that about God or for other people? The answer is yes. It's really both, but it starts with love for God. And let me remind you of how all love that we show even to one another actually has as its foundation love for God. Galatians chapter 5 says this. The entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now as you look at that, you ought, if you're awake, you ought to be thinking about that. The entire law is fulfilled in us loving each other? I thought that was the second command. Where's the first command? And the reason Paul who wrote that, he wrote the Galatians as well, the reason he can say that is because you can't do the second command, you can't truly do the second command unless you're doing the first. And so the assumption is that you're doing the first. And that is why we had when Jesus had this encounter with his detractors and they said, good master, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus answered them famously, love the Lord your God with all your heart. With all your soul and with all your mind, this is the first and the greatest commandment. And then he went on to say, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. But you can't do the second one unless you do the first. Love of God comes before and is foundational to love for one another. In terms of our love for God, Kent Hughes has said this, the more we know about God, the more reason we have to love Him. Christian love comes from a work of the Holy Spirit, bringing the revelation of God through the Word of God. And the more you are in the Word, the more your knowledge of God and Christ will increase. Remember this, he says, a superficial love for God is a sure sign of a superficial knowledge of God. And this is why we must give priority to gathered worship with our Bibles and our hearts open to God. This is why we must regularly open the Scriptures for ourselves and teach them to our children. You're only going to love God as you ought and then in turn be able to love each other as we ought. As we know this God. The only way to know this God is from His self-disclosure in His Word in the Scriptures. And all of that's only possible for those who have a relationship with God. 
It's only those people who have that relationship with him who can emulate his love to others. And that's why in the Bible, love is said to be a fruit of the spirit. And it's a fruit of the spirit that enables every other spiritual virtue in the Christian life to be exercised properly. Many of you are familiar with those nine fruits of the Spirit that are listed in Galatians 5, but the first is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and so on. So crucial is this issue of love. That apart from it, apart from a motivation to do all that I do for the sake of God and then in turn to see that fleshed out for the sake of others. Apart from that, then everything that I do means absolutely nothing. Yikes. Apart from that, no matter how many good things I do, they amount to nothing. Now, am I overstating that? Again, the love chapter. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels... But do not have love. I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. It goes on. If I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And still further. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Without this love. No Christian can be spiritually complete. And that's why in another of Paul's letters, Colossians, in Colossians chapter 3, he says this, Love binds all Christian virtues together in perfect unity. Just as knowledge of God increases our ability and our desire to serve God, so also with others. The more we know one another, the better we know how to love one another. The more we know about what is in each other's best interests. So the prayer here is for love that has an experiential relationship with God and with others. I pray this, that your love may abound more and more, more and more in this kind of knowledge, relational knowledge with God and others. But also, I say in your outline, this is a love that's not only experienced, but a love that is wise. A love that is wise. Because it says, I pray that your love may abound, verse 9, more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Now, the word that's translated by that phrase, depth of insight, is used only here in the entire New Testament. So having an understanding of what it means could be very difficult since this is the only place that it's used. However, we do find it used 22 other times in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. Now, many of you know that your New Testament was written in Greek. And this Greek word that's translated depth of insight is used, as I say, only here in the New Testament. But there was a translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. And the equivalent, this equivalent Greek word is used 22 times for another Hebrew word, in particular in the book, Old Testament book of Proverbs. And the word means practical insight. Insight that informs our conduct, practical conduct, or to put it in a word, wisdom. And that's why I say here, this is a love that is wise. This depth of insight is a wisdom that makes practical application of what we know. What we know about God, what we know about others. 
Wisdom in the Old Testament was not just the accumulation of knowledge. Wisdom was the skill of taking knowledge from the Word of God and our relationships with one another and applying that knowledge to the circumstances of our relationships and our daily living. Now, the world's notion of love is, as I've said, this sort of sentimentality. We're swept along in an uncontrolled state. No thought is given. I'm just swept up in emotion. There's no thinking about it, no discrimination when we are applying this love. But biblical love thinks about it and applies it judiciously. It's thoughtful. It's well-reasoned. It takes the knowledge of the Word of God and the knowledge that we have of God and of others. And it evaluates all things and then makes the best choices based on that love. And that's how why it's a prerequisite to doing what verse 10 says. So that you may be able to discern. Evaluate and choose. Discern, evaluate, and choose what is best. And you can only do it if you have this kind of love. Love that is knowledgeable and love that is experienced and wise. Now, what's the application of all of that? Well, I want to read a lengthy quote from somebody else to apply that. And here's why. Because in applying this, he's going to make you and me feel really guilty. So I would rather the guilt trip be placed at the feet of somebody else rather than me. Some of you are familiar with the New Testament scholar D.A. Carson. Here's what D.A. Carson says about this very prayer and its application for us to pursue what is best. What do you do with your time? How many hours a week do you spend with your children? Have you spent any time in the past two months witnessing to someone about the gospel? How much time have you spent watching television or in other forms of personal relaxation? Are you committed in your use of time to what is best? What have you read in the past six months? If you found time for newspapers or news magazines, the internet or a novel or two, or perhaps a trade journal, have you also found time for reading a commentary or some other Christian literature that will help you better understand the Bible or improve your spiritual discipline or broaden your horizons? Are you committed, he asks, in your reading habits to what is best? How are your relationships within your family? Do you pause now and then and reflectively think through what you can do to strengthen ties with your spouse and with your children? Do you make time for personal prayer, for attending meetings that have prayer, like our Sunday night home groups? Have you taken steps to improve in this regard? How do you decide what to do with your money? Do you give a set percentage, he says, say 10% of your income to the Lord's work, however begrudgingly, and then regard the rest of your income as your own? Or do you regard yourself as the Lord's steward so that all the money you earn is ultimately his? Are you delighted when you find yourself able to put much more of your money into strategic ministry simply because you love to invest in eternity? Has your compassion deepened over the years so that far from becoming more cynical, you try to take concrete steps to serve those who have less than you? Is your reading and study of the Bible so improving your knowledge of God that your wholehearted worship of the Almighty grows in spontaneity and devotion and joy? 
At what points in your life do you cheerfully decide, for no other reason than that you are a Christian, to step outside your comfort zone, living and serving in painful or difficult self-denial? Behind your answers to all of these questions are choices. Now he goes on to say, the last thing I want to do is generate a load of guilt. Well, (laughs) you failed at that, D.A., but then he goes on to say, and I won't, I won't read further, but he goes on to say that this is motivated by this love of verse 9. In summarizing what he goes on to say, he is saying that, look, you do this because God is worth it. And you do this because God's image bearers are worth it. You don't do it primarily because it's a rule. You don't do it primarily because you have to. You do it because you want to, and you want to because God is worth it. And so Paul, who wrote this and who prays this for himself and for those for whom he prays, could not be satisfied with the status quo. Knowing that we are destined for the perfection that's to be achieved when Christ returns, already he wants us to press toward it. He cannot be and he does not want us to be lackadaisical, in our, in our praying. Because the more fruitful and the more holy he becomes and we become, the more he perceives how much further he has to go. And he wants these believers and us to share that same vision. In short, Paul is passionate about pursuing spiritual excellence, what is best. He pursues it himself and he prays it for others. That's the way we ought to pray for ourselves. That's the way we ought to pray for one another. And so each of us needs to ask, do I want what's best? Do I want what's most excellent or am I satisfied? Now hear this, guys, to just show up on Sunday and go through the motions. Convicting, isn't it? We're to pursue what is best. And what is best requires real love. And I say in your outline. What is best results in holy living. This is my prayer that you may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Here's why. So that you may be able to discern what is best. And then it says, and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. The purpose of this love is that you might pursue what is best so that you may be able to discern what is best. But verse 10 looks like there's a second parallel purpose because it says so that you may be able to discern what's best. And then there's the word and. And you may be pure and blameless. But get this in Greek, there's no and there. So there actually are not two purposes. The purpose is the one that I gave you at the beginning for us to pursue what is best. Pursuing what is best is Christian growth in all of its aspects. So what does this mean? Instead, if you eliminate the word and, the flow is you love in this way and that produces a life that evaluates and chooses what is best in order that you may be these things, pure, blameless, and filled with righteousness. And that you may be those things for or until the day of Christ. If you love God and others as described, then it will produce this kind of life. Pure, blameless, filled with righteousness. 
pure. The word means unmixed. Transparency of heart. Unmixed motivations and desires. It's moral transparency so that what you see is what you get. And what you get is good. That's what purity is. Blameless means literally without stumbling, without anything that someone could point to and say, this contradicts the life that you say you're pursuing or want to pursue. Purity is something internal. Blameless is external. And then filled with the fruit of of righteousness. Now, we have Christ's righteousness. Anybody who belongs to the Lord Jesus, who has come to him in faith and has a vital living relationship with him, has his Holy Spirit indwelling them and producing the fruit of the Spirit. Anybody who has that kind of relationship has the righteousness of Christ. The moment you came to God through Jesus, the righteous, perfect life of Jesus was applied to you. And that's a fancy term that we call in theology justification. Some of you are familiar with that. So I'm justified before God, not because I'm without sin, far from it, but rather because Christ was without sin and his sinless, righteous life is applied to me when I come to him in faith. So we have that. And it's referred to in chapter 3, this kind of righteousness. And verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. But hear this now. That's the initial Standing of righteousness that we get when we come to Jesus Christ. When we were born again. When we became Christians. I get that blessed standing before God. He looks at me through the righteousness of Jesus. But then there is my experience. There is how I'm living down here. Day by day. And day by day my life is to be gradually conformed to that standard of righteousness. That initial justification is to issue forth in right living and all sorts of right living. And that's why it says filled with the fruit of righteousness. Now, all of that comes as a result of this love, that real love that we have as we pursue what is best. So that point, number three in your outline, is what is best results in holy living. Purity, blamelessness, filled with the fruit of righteousness results from that. Now, conversely, think of it this way. If all of that comes from love that's abounding more and more, then if I'm not pure in heart, if I'm not living a life that people can look at And say that life is consistent with the profession of faith that that person makes. If I am not filled with the fruit of righteousness in its various aspects. If that's not happening, then why? Given the logic of the passage, why? What produces this? Love for God and love for others. And forgive the grammar, but if it ain't happening, it means I don't love God and I don't love other people. If my heart is impure, if my life is disobedient, if my life does not display this fruit of righteousness, it is because I don't love God and others as I'm called to do. Lastly, we're to pursue what is best. 
What is best requires this real love. It results in holy living. And what is best results from proper motivation. The end of verse 11. This is all to the glory and praise of God. Here you are. Here I am. At church. On the Lord's Day. With the Bible open. Looking like Christians. And all of that can be motivated for the wrong reasons. The motivation is the glory and the praise of our God. And so you've got to ask yourself, and I've got to ask myself, why do you do what you do? Why do you say what you say? For what reason am I doing this? As I stand up before you every Lord's Day and open God's Word, I need to ask myself, why am I doing this? One of the things that I determined to do years ago as I started preaching was to ask myself, what if it were possible to have a sort of wall, a sort of screen that hid me from the people to whom I was talking and they never knew me? And no one ever came to you and said, thank you for that. And no one ever came to you and built your ego up. What if that never happened? Would you do it just as hard? Would you do it with the same kind of diligence? Because the praise is all for the Lord. The answer to that needs to be yes. The answer to that needs to be yes for every one of us in everything we do. So that it's to the praise and glory of our God. Paul's pursuit in prayer of what is excellent is not idolatrous. But man... Guys and gals, our, our sin is so deep and our hearts can become so easily idolatrous and drawn away that even the good things we do can be done for other than the glory of God. Instead, it needs to be bound up with praising God. Paul, who wrote this, would have understood that old Irish hymn, Be Thou My Vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou my best thought, by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence, my light. Here's your take-home truth. Your best life now. (laughs) Your best life now is found in pursuing Christ. Let's bow together. Father, thank you for loving us so that we can in turn love you and love others. This is only your work in our lives. And to the extent that we make any progress, the credit does not belong to us but to you. Thank you for all the means, Lord, that you have provided for us to move forward in this pursuit to which you have called us of what is best. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your people. Oh, Lord, we ask you to continue to work in each of us as we pursue what is best 
as we evaluate and choose the things that are most excellent so that we can advance the ultimate purpose for which you do all things, your praise and your glory. We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.